This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Welcome to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George's Best of Album. Today is the 4th of January, 2021, and we're going to look at two of the most important stories that we covered through the year 2020. Stay tuned. On those cold days in January, we went behind the lines interviewing Molly Wickham, Carla Tate and Jerome Turner, who uh, reported to us from behind the lines at the Unistoten Healing Center. Can you tell us what the current state of affairs is at the um, uh, at the entry point to the Yinta area that you're uh, that you're at right now. So there's been a camp that's set up at 39 kilometer, which is uh, the border for Cassia House territory, and we've stationed some people there in order to be eyes on the ground and to have a place for people to come and support. Um, both of the villages, the Gidim Den Checkpoint and the Unistoten Healing Center. And so it's basically the only way, it's the entrance into the territory, but you'll be, people are being stopped there and they can come and offer their support. Um, and it's quite, it's quite extreme out there right now. The, uh, the weather's really, really cold, but People have been great at constructing a couple of uh, wall tents there, so we have 24-hour surveillance and watch just to make sure that everybody's staying safe out there in the territory. Now, um, the RCMP has created some difficulties in people getting in and out. Uh, What's the current state of the RCMP's efforts to have their own checkpoint and exert their own control? Well, they're currently only plowing to the RCMP station. So there's the CISO office, which is at 29 kilometer, uh, which the chiefs have asked them to vacate. They were never supposed to be there in the first place. They didn't have permission uh, to set up a detachment there. But they have all of their detachment there at 29, and so that's only where the road is being plowed. And so with this recent snowfall, it's getting quite difficult to get into 39 kilometer. Um, They've also discouraged and uh, some helicopter companies from flying in. So we had tried to fly in some supplies um, and they were told afterwards the helicopter companies wouldn't be flying anywhere to attend into the territory anymore, which causes a huge concern for us because if there's a medical emergency or we run out of food, um, then that's the only way to get in and out currently. 
this seems like, you know, for those of us who are uh, not uh, staring down the barrel of the RCMP in the way that um, you are at present, this would seem a little counterintuitive. This police force is supposed to protect human life, and yet essentially they're attempting to create a food shortage, attempting to prevent uh, medical aid. Um, is um, uh, What's their justification for this behavior? Um, their justification for this behavior has just been silence, essentially. So they're not addressing those kinds of issues with the Wet'suwet'en. Um, they continually say that they're there for public safety and that they're a neutral party in this situation, which we know from the, our experiences in the last year, not only and the violent raid that happened on get, at Get'em Den Checkpoint, but with the harassment and ongoing surveillance that they are not a neutral party. They're taking direction straight from Coastal Gas Link. Um, and so it's, you know, we don't have any, we're looking at other means to address the situation, but currently we don't have uh, a really great, you know, dialogue on those points with the RCMP. They're, they continue to just reinforce the idea that they're there for everybody's protection and have no real justification for their tactics. Now, how um, uh, if the uh, if these uh, if they're successful in strong arming the pipeline through, what are some of the ways that pipeline could impact uh, healthy life on the land? Well, the pipeline is actually slated to go right underneath the headwaters of. Uh, many of our river systems. And so we call our river Wudzinkwa, and uh, the English name is Maurice River. But it's the headwaters for the Skeena, uh, the Bulkley, and uh, and many of the other, like, uh, really important salmon-bearing uh, river systems. It's where all of the salmon come to spawn is up these rivers. And so, and they're planning to be the first to go through. And so not only um, would it impact the wildlife and the fish habitat, but even without a break, you know, we, we all know that pipelines break and that there's explosions and TC can TC Energy actually has a history. The pipeline has even begun construction. We've seen the decline of all of our wild animals. So that's not even having the pipeline built yet or in full construction mode. That's only within, you know, the last little bit here in the last year that there's been pre-construction activities and we've already seen our moose and our bears and our wolves and uh, all of the smaller animals leaving the areas where they were once plentiful. I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your day to talk with us uh, here. It's much appreciated. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we're moving a little bit down the road from the checkpoint to the Unistoten Healing Center, where we have Carla Tate on the line. Uh, thanks for joining us, Carla. Thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so can you tell me what your role is uh, and how you've come to participate in um, what's going on uh, uh, at, the, uh, at the headwaters? Well, I'm an Unistoten House member. I am daughter to Kaltai, niece to uh, Health Cup. Altai is my mother, Brenda Michelle. Halifkat is Frida Heeson. Um, 
So I'm, I'm a house member of, of the Amistadden. We are the dark house group of the Gishwehu or Big Frog Clan within the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Um, so it's under the support and direction of our hereditary chief, Nettie Peace, um, that we're here um, maintaining a presence on our, our yenta, occupying our lands. I'm also a clinical psychologist by, by trade, um, so I have a PhD in the same, and um, I do provide pro bono oversight to the clinical programming at the Unistatin Healing Center. So I am on site today, um, standing with uh, Frida and at the direction of our collective with and chiefs to maintain our position um, on, on territory and uh, uh, uphold the eviction notice that they've issued to CGL. This, uh, you know, might, uh, might problematize some people's expectations that we have a healing center, but um, this isn't woo we're talking about here. You've got you've a doctorate in clinical psychology. What are some of the other uh, activities that happen at the healing center besides your own work? A lot of the focus and the emphasis of the work done here and proposed for here, um, we do have significantly more programming planned in the coming year. But up to this point, we've received uh, grants for uh, cultural revitalization work, <clears throat> primarily land-based work. Um, we know that the biggest factor in resiliency uh, for Indigenous people is uh, connection cultural practices. And, of course, all of our cultural practices are rooted in the territories that we, we come from, the territories that we've had sustainable uh, relationship with for millennia, which, which is how we came to have these hereditary names and uh, tracks of data. Each of those hereditary names are tied as stewards, as protectors, uh, to ensure that there's a future for the next seven generations. So um, most of our work does focus on cultural revitalization. So we've, we've uh, done specific groups that require a little more support. So Indigenous youth, we've hosted a number of youth art camps in which, you know, we're, we're sharing information and, and origin stories about this territory, uh, Dark House territory. Um, we teach them about different art techniques. This most recent one included Formline by a, an esteemed uh, Gixan artist, which, of course, is a, an art form common along the, the Northwest Coast. Um, and also one practiced by Zoodendi people, um, called, uh, medicine, traditional med medicine harvest, uh, food harvest off the land, so hunting, uh, berry picking. Um, so there's a number of, of activities we engage in on the territory to really reaffirm that connection to the land. And... Um, we have a traditional government that's doing some of the things we might associate with a government, like providing health care services and employing people at family-supporting jobs. Um, so there's real work going on at Unistoten. How has that been impacted by um, the uh, Horgan pipeline, and how do you imagine it will be impacted if the occupation continues? Oh, significantly. Um, this past year is the first year we haven't been able to hunt um, a, a large game, so moose, on our own territory. So we weren't able to distribute that amongst our elders. 
um, or use it to supply the food for our programming here. And that was directly related to the presence of CGL work crews on our territory, uh, Site 9A, um, the, the generators and other equipment there, and the, pres- the human presence has really deterred um, the moose population from returning. And I know in their proposed plans, they had requested um, permit exceptions, so that's the uh, BC OGC's permits, to do this work on our territory um, as granted by the province of BC, which has no authority to grant any work on our territory. But they, uh, CGL had requested exceptions to typical practices um, that would allow them to disturb areas and work closely to, to moose habitat or ungulate grazing sites or wintering sites. So, of course, that will impact further activity and presence of uh, moose on our territory, which is a really primary source of food um, for our programming and for our members. Uh, um, I, I imagine that ongoing um, were pipeline able to force um, its advancement here with, with RCMP and, and provincial support. Um, we, we would see our programming completely decimated. Um, it, it's already been heavily impacted under the interim injunction activities, so I don't imagine um, we would see the improvement if the pipeline were to actually be constructed. People say, well, the elected band council government, some of them have signed agreements with the pipeline company. Uh, doesn't this, aren't they more legitimate than the hereditary chiefs in making decisions about the territory and uh, in um, determining the relationship with the RCMP? Well, to that, I would say no. Um, elected band councils are appointed governance structures whose jurisdiction is limited to within to what falls within reserve boundaries, which are very small tracts of land. We know from the dispossession of our people in our traditional territories, um, those were often the, the poorest tracts of land um, available at the time. So um, in this case, um, none of, of the, the reserve lands... Um, so those, those band councils who had signed on to this project, none of them will be directly impacted by the route of the pipeline. The pipeline doesn't cross any reserve um, lands. It, it passes through, in the case for the Wasilitan, all traditional territory, all unceded territory, which we know to be um, the jurisdiction of our hereditary chiefs. And that is actually um, in within the, the Canadian legal system, um, also substantiated by the Dalgamuk 1999 Supreme Court of Canada court decision, which uh, recognizes that our hereditary chiefs had never ceded, um, never surrendered their rights and title to uh, the 22,000 square kilometers of our territory. The problematic aspect of um, seeking out band uh, council support for this type of project is that um, most of those, those councils are elected um, in which, you know, those, those councils are only in office a short period of time, um, two to four years, which, of course, um, doesn't hold them accountable for these types of long-term decisions uh, um, 
you know, where the incentive for for funding to support um, woefully underfunded infrastructure on reserves makes make projects like these with financial um, injections or investment really enticing to, to folks that don't have the resources to, to maintain infrastructure on reserves. So I'd say it's sort of baiting our communities um, who are sometimes in a state of financial duress, uh, whereas our hereditary systems, which um, have been passed on for millennia, um, they, are, they are accountable to our Wet'suwet'en law, which also ensures that there is um, consideration for future generations, right? Members, uh, our hereditary chiefs are accountable to all their membership. They must also consider the impacts of their decision on their neighbor's territory. Um, they must consider it for future generations and for every, every living thing that depends on the land. Um, and those are lifetime appointments. If, if a hereditary chief carries and conducts themselves in a respectful way, um, they maintain that position throughout their life. They carry that name, and they, they build the esteem of that name or the shame of that name. Um, if they conduct themselves poorly or act in, in violation of what's within law, they can be stripped of that name. Um, so these are positions that are, are not taken lightly, often um, or historically, and even today, um, folks that receive those names are groomed for them throughout their lives, and they're selected because they demonstrate leadership quality. So to be clear then, this is not exactly an autocratic system either. People, there's a selection process and there's a recall process. You both get chosen Absolutely. for the job and can lose the job if you do it wrong. So this in many ways sounds... Uh, this. Uh, this sounds like a type of democracy uh, that um, in, in that you can recall or defeat somebody who's not doing their job. The following week, I interviewed Ricochet's Jerome Turner. For a long time, the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs created an entity that functioned as a single political unit. Uh, they backed um, Herb George's independent candidacy in Bulkley Valley Stikine in 1991. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, more, more famously, um, it was hyphenated. The Gitsan Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs um, uh, were the uh, the plaintiffs in uh, in the Delgamuk cases that established these ideas of unceded land, prior consent, uh, consultation. All of these important uh, terms that are being bandied about today. Um, what's the role of the the Gitsan uh, in relation to this territory now, and how has that changed? Well, it's, it's interesting since uh, the Gitsan, but and Wet'suwet'en collectively fought for recognition of both an oral history and uh, the fact that neither had surrendered territory. Uh, a lot of things have changed since then, like 1997, I guess, was the decision. Um, but, like, getting to your point of free prior informed consent, that has been, that is part of what Suicide Law and Gitsan Law. Like, that's, um, whatever, like, I've always been taught that if, like, on Gitsan territory, if you, if you take an animal, like you wound an animal and it wanders across the stream, 
into another chief's territory, and you're not allowed to take from that territory. Like you're, you have to go to that chief and ask them to remove that moose or whatever from their territory. Unless, and if you don't do that, then then that's no longer your moose. <laughs> yeah, and if you do it without the consent of the chief, then you're like. The older punishments were very severe. He did that without permission. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, getting to the West Uten and uh, Gitsan relationship right now, um, the Gitsan has donated the canvas tents that are 39. They donated a lot of the materials that are part of the uh, new meeting center at 27 kilometer. And they're just... Um, I think that that relationship of uh, there's a couple few Gitsan people here as well that are staying at the various camps that are alone and uh, the home here on, on Minnesota territory. Um, of course, we have uh, a very different set of ideas on the part of our provincial and federal governments. Are people uh, are people along the line fearful? of um, what the provincial and federal governments may do, and uh, what's the shape of those fears? Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of a specter hanging over everyone, but like despite despite what happened last year and the potential for basically the exact same thing to happen this year, which which is almost imminent based on what John Harbin said, like the pipeline is happening, and from what I've asked people here, like they they see that as the the government going to allow the the injection to be upheld via RCMP again. Um, there, but despite all that, the the mood at every spot, every every group of people here is is pretty upbeat and like they're they're living in their home at this point. <laughs> Uh, but Frida, Frida did say a couple of, when I first talked to her that she she does feel like a bit of a prisoner in her own home up here. He goes to Twitter. We find there's um, there's some fairly prodigious buck passing going on uh, between Canada's. Um, various progressive um, or, well, that's what they call themselves, so we have to take them at their word, uh, Canada's three progressive parties. Uh, we've got um, the uh, uh, we've got the leader of the federal NDP uh, stating that um, the uh, federal liberal party is responsible for the RCMP uh, creating this uh, siege dynamic and uh, bringing force into the equation. Um, Liberal Party of Canada representatives are pushing back, saying, no, that's the decision of John Horgan's government here in British Columbia. Uh, We've, uh, John Horgan has talked a bit about the rule of law. Nobody seems to have got a comment from BC's Solicitor General, who commands the RCMP. And now we have um, the uh, interim leader of the BC Green Party, who is showing up to meet with the Wet'suwet'en chiefs, but um, has, as of yet, not endorsed um, 
either uh, the the camps, uh, the efforts to uh, stop the pipeline, um, but is uh, stating uh, is using a lot of the language of both sides and de-escalation. How are people up there unraveling this sort of buck passing and colonial government conversation? But like the gen- in general, like they're people that live up here are not paying a lot of attention to to what's happening um, in like any news stream in particular like they're not they're not waiting for for any notification they want to speak with uh, John Horgan for sure like I know that for a fact that the West Houston definitely has the chiefs that are making the stand want to collectively speak with John Horgan and uh and the Attorney General, I spoke with John Ridsdale quickly when him and Adam Olson were at uh, Kilometer 39. Um, and that's what he said there. Um, but, like, people people here are, like, I was having a conversation at dinner with a few people both last night and the night before, and they just, they're, they're in this bubble of not really having any connection to the outside world. And... Uh, and it's just envious to some, <laughs> to some degree. So is Adam Olson still there? No, he just stopped in uh, to 39 kilometer, um, yeah, which was very welcome from uh, the West perspective. Um, that he is part of the current government, um, and they really appreciated having him here. Uh, Sahil, um, Adam Gagnon was with him and uh, traveling with him from Smithers and so was uh, Nemox, John Ridsdale. Um, and they're, they're, they, they appreciate the willingness from somebody from government to come in and basically show their face at the place where, where everything is happening. And they, they were a bit disappointed that Horgan didn't do that, but uh, yeah, they're looking forward to having a meeting with Horgan still. Does, is he presenting himself as part of the government that's uh, allowing this to go forward? Or? Well, he's, he's basically, at this point, from he, he presented as, as part of the government, but a part of the government that will listen, do something. I, I'm not sure what at this point. It's just uh, what he said. But one of the things that stood out to me, what he said to the people standing at 39 and listening to him, if uh, Oregon doesn't feel the Wet'suwet'en laws are part of the rule of law, then falling short. Paraphrase. I have Adam Finch on the line. Uh, he is, um, and he's with us to talk a little bit about the framing of pipeline conflict. Yeah, thanks, Stuart, and good morning. Thanks for having me on. Right. So when we're thinking about um, the framing of a conflict, we often think about a protagonist or an antagonist. Uh, Now, who we think the protagonist or antagonist is is kind of um, part of our politics, but it seems like one of these two parties is being framed as Coastal Gas Link, a company that many of us have never heard of. Um... What do you make of the sudden increase in the profile of this obscure company in how we're framing this debate? I think there are really two main issues here. So firstly, the way this is framed is depoliticizing an inherently political discussion. And secondly, it's conflating a corporate interest with 
our human interests. So what I mean by depoliticizing is that by framing this as a dispute between Coastal Gas Link and Indigenous people, we implicitly accept that this is merely a business transaction between a private LNG firm who have the full support of RRCMP and multiple First Nations bands. And really one of the problems uh, with this was really well laid out by Jody Wilson-Raybould in a recent Globe and Mail piece. So she pointed out that First Nations people are in a period of transition and nation-building uh, and have been for some time, and that reconciliation requires a transition away from these colonial systems of government, which are imposed through the Indian Act, to systems of Indigenous governance that are determined by Indigenous people. So the discussions on giving consent to access through traditional First Nations territory is fundamentally a conversation between nations. It's a nation-to-nation relationship. And this can't be solved by, uh, you know, or decided through a dispute between a private LNG firm and individual First Nations bands. And the second issue I mentioned is that the corporate interests here are essentially using basic human rights as leverage with First Nations communities. So what I mean by this is that First Nations' economic prosperity and their health and their overall treatment as fellow human beings is being presented as a choice for First Nations people between negotiating with these large multinational firms with revenue-sharing agreements and so on, or nothing at all. But we're talking about basic human rights here. So setting aside treaty rights, which is another matter that comes after these basic human rights, they just can't be conditional. So this question really is, can a community or a nation really give their free, prior, and informed consent when their livelihood as a community is on the line there? And I really don't think that's fair. So, um, uh, if we, uh, so if we imagine Coastal Gas Link is the antagonist, who are, um, uh, there are some other ways to frame this. This could be a dispute with not Coastal Gas Link, but the B.C. government, could be a dispute with the federal government, could be a dispute with Royal Dutch Shell, the company that will be consuming the natural gas when it arrives. How would the complexion of the debate change if we imagined a different party as our main character? Yeah, and the additional question to this is really who is on the other side of this conversation, and it's being framed as if it's just hereditary chief versus coastal gas link. So, again, I think it's worth underscoring that the situation can't be boiled down to an easy dichotomy of just one side versus the other. It's just too important of an issue to reduce to that level. So the main two things that I see is that framing this as a standoff between coastal gas link and hereditary chiefs is problematic, firstly, because it undermines efforts of nation rebuilding and reconciliation, and secondly, because along with this colonial kind of tactic of divide and conquer among First Nations, it's having the secondary function that divides and conquers the rest of Canadian society, distracting us from the very real and important environmental objections to the pipeline. So, right. So, so I'm an environmentalist, um, and I, I, I have to confess, I, I would oppose Coastal Gas Link or the federal government or the provincial government or Royal Dutch Shell for building a giant pipeline to run a carbon bomb in Kitimat. It seems curious that people would imagine that depending upon um, the legal or cultural or um, racial elements of the situation, that it would alter the properties of carbon atoms when they're emitted into the atmosphere. Yeah, that really is the second problem uh, with framing this debate as one between hereditary chiefs and coastal gas, because that is 
placing limits on the scope of our debate. So you're seeing this entire environmentalist movement at the moment whose mission is to reverse climate change and prevent a potential mass extinction event like what we're already witnessing in Australia or our own wildfires here in B.C. And what they're doing is placing the burden of their arguments against expanding the oil and gas industry almost entirely on the shoulders of First Nations activists and land defenders. Yes, I, I, I found that curious that often in our, um, in our present political moment where a certain kind of identity politics is popular, um, many environmentalists are saying, well, I can't protest uh, this pipeline. I need to be led uh, by um, young indigenous people or by people who are mandated by that hereditary um, uh, governance system. Um, what, uh, I mean, h- how, how do we have a conversation about that? How, do in, how should environmentalists feel okay about protesting um, this project on environmental grounds alone? Yeah, and I think we should reiterate that, of course, the question of Indigenous rights and title is of the utmost importance, but it's unfair for us to be placing this extra burden of halting the climate crisis on the shoulders of Indigenous people. So the message that the environmentalist voice needs or is sending right now is, as you said, the expansion of LNG industry would be okay if it went through the proper avenues for consent with First Nations, as if that consent is going to change the chemical makeup of carbon dioxide or how it impacts our global weather system. So really, we need to look at our own economic and environmental reasons to oppose any new investment in oil and gas. So, for example, just last week, the Financial Times reported on natural gas prices falling to the lowest level in 40 years as a surplus flood of the market. Or if we look back in 2014, the BCGEU made an investment or made a decision to pull all their investments out of oil. And they understood that it was just a bad investment. And they're not an activist organization. They're not an environmentalist organization. It was an economic decision in the best interest of their membership. And as a result, they saved tens of millions of dollars. And like, of course, we also need to make this case, not only as people who care about the environment and our children's future, but as human beings whose existence is dependent upon the environment and stable ecosystems. So as I think you know, like LNG is being presented to us as a clean alternative to oil, but in reality, it can only offer about a 10% net reduction in emissions. Well, and also the term clean is funny, right? What clean means is emits only carbon dioxide and methane, then mm-hmm. all that crap like sulfur dioxide, which actually has temporary mitigating factors on climate change, uh, isn't emitted. So whereas a dirty fuel like thermal coal um, throws, up car- uh, throws up sulfur dioxide, which produces both acid rain and temporary cooling, uh, that's dirty, but if we just get to things that only warm the planet, that only produce a climate catastrophe, that's what's labeled as clean. So, yeah, lots of uh, crazy framing in uh, in this whole debate. I really appreciate you coming on the program. We're- this is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7. This broadcast is supported by Los Altos Institute and a grant from the Canadian Journalism Initiative. Throughout the year, we've continued to follow the worrying conditions in schools here in Prince George and around northern BC. First with government austerity prior to COVID and then unsatisfactory interactions with our teachers uh, who remain very worried up to the present day. 
we interviewed uh, Joanne Hapke, head of the BCTF for Prince George, education activist Joanna Larson from Prince Rupert, and uh, Patty Backus, the longest serving Vancouver School Board chair. In September, we checked back in with Joanne about the state of education as our kids returned to schools. And we'll be checking back in very shortly after schools resume this January. So I want to uh, thank uh, Joanne for coming into studio and uh, spending uh, part of Monday morning with us. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Stuart. I'm really pleased to be here to represent the teachers and what is happening in our district. So uh, last week we uh, got a series of news stories about how we now have an acute teacher shortage here, sort of like the kinds of shortages we were seeing in the Peace River country a few years ago, where... Uh, we're not able to fill all of our classrooms with regular classroom teachers. How bad is it here right now? This is the worst year that we've had since our uh, collective agreement language was restored in 2016. Uh, there are currently 13 teaching positions for classrooms that are not filled, and uh, classrooms and non-enrolling teachers, teachers who support the students in classrooms. And so we're looking at French immersion classrooms are not being able to be filled in our elementary schools, and that is a growing program, as we know, in our district. There are nine unfilled elementary classrooms and four unfilled uh, secondary. So this is a struggle. So how do our wages and working conditions stack up against uh, other parts of the country? We do have the lowest starting wage of uh, in the country. And in the West, we have the, the lowest wage out west of Quebec for the most experienced teachers. So... This is a and, and this is a region where three of the western provinces, the ones that uh, the ones to our east, Alberta, governed by the United Conservative Party, uh, the Saskatchewan, governed by a coalition of liberals and conservatives in the Saskatchewan Party, uh, Manitoba, governed by the Manitoba Conservative Party, and all these conservatives are paying teachers more money than uh, our NDP government in Victoria. Is this more, do you feel like this is more Rob Fleming and the Ministry of Education here? Or is this Carol James, our finance minister and the Treasury Board, that's really calling the shots? You know, that, that's a really good question. I have to say that there is a, a little bit of, of both there. Right now, Rob Fleming's deputy minister is still a liberal appointee. So that, that person in, in that position has worked, actively worked against the government or against teachers for the government for a number of years. And he was kept in that position when the NDP came to power. We are confused by why that was allowed to happen. Uh, we don't understand why that was allowed to happen, but he his ideas and the advice that he is going to be giving to the Minister of Education will come from his years of uh, of working against the teachers. And now, Carol James, I think she's done an incredible job in her role. She has provided money uh, to many uh, many of the public sectors to to increase and support programs which are vitally important uh, to our province. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure why there, is, there isn't money for, 
four teachers in in this round, and we are working against uh, uh, people who who main, who remain in all levels of ministry and with BCPC who were liberal appointees who who worked against us, not with us, to support students. Uh, now we have uh, Joanna Larson, longtime uh, teacher activist uh, in Prince Rupert and a friend of the show. You may remember her from the BC Bus North episode we did last fall. Uh, Joanna, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Stuart. So um, I don't know how much of the last interview you heard, but we are down 13 teachers here in Prince George. Um uh, that um, and we're finding that um, it's impossible for the, um, the the teacher ratios associated with our collective agreement uh, to be filled. What's the situation on the ground like in Prince Rupert and the rest of the Northwest? Uh, well, it's, it's pretty bleak. <laughs> we have um, right now. I think we have about twenty-seven people that are teaching without teaching credentials. Um, so they're not trained teachers, and we've already had, I think, four resignations this year. Um, our French immersion program is quite in danger. We don't have, um, my daughter's in French immersion, and she um, does not have a French teacher at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's pretty dire across the province in terms of um, teachers wanting to be teachers <laughs> anymore in our province. So, yeah, it's tough. So, um now, uh, obviously, I found that news exciting because I have no teaching credentials whatsoever and am presently looking for work. Um, how is it that districts are getting around requiring um, those basic credentials and hiring non-teachers? Oh, well, there's something called a letter of permission that you can apply for. And if they, if they cannot fill a position, they're able to uh, apply to the teacher qualification services for a letter of permission, and they can work with that. Um, but what it means is you don't, uh, you don't have the, the, the teacher training or the, the, the sort of education that most qualified teachers have. Yes, well, as somebody who teaches uh, at the post-secondary level, I remember my teacher training. I went to a 50-minute workshop, was given two slices of cold pizza, and told not to sleep with my students. So, uh, yeah, I would imagine if you're importing teachers from the university level, there they might be a skill or two that um, they're uh, they're missing now. This um, this was a government that uh, you worked to elect, that I worked to elect. Um, uh, in our last interview, we had some theorizing about why uh, this government um, has carried on with Christy Clark's teaching policies. Uh, what's your take on how this has come to pass? You even have an NDP member of the legislature there. Yes, we do. Um, and yes, I, I did work hard um, for a change. And one of the reasons I did that was because of um, the educational platform of the party, that they were going to make changes. Uh, the last time the BC NDP were in uh, government in BC in 2000, they spent 20% of uh, total government spending was on education. This current NDP government is spending um, slightly more than 11%. That's so extraordinary, a 45% cut. Uh, yeah, we're yeah we're getting there. It is. Um, they 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 very much like. I think it was uh, one of your previous MLAs that worked as education minister. 
there that went around talking about highest funding ever. Um, this government is using much the same language, but it's what they're talking about is, yeah, they are putting more money in education, in, in actual dollars, but as we all, we all understand inflation in BC, we all understand that we're paying the most for groceries and, and hydro and um, just the basics of living, right? Like rents are the highest they've ever been. Um, we understand that, but when you look at the actual total spending, uh, in BC we spend almost $1,900 on average less per student. In a classroom of 20 students, that's $38,000 missing. That's, uh, that's an extraordinary amount of money. And uh, so essentially what you're saying is the, um, that uh, uh, do you see your school as also bleeding students to the private system? Oh, of course. <laughs> that's the, uh, the attack on the public system and the erosion of it. So the public system is designed for everybody. It's to create equal opportunity and to give the citizens, the voting citizens of our province, um, the ability to to maintain that, to, to maintain our belief in, in in our government structures, and to, you know to be able to to earn a living and to participate, to volunteer, to all the productive elements. When you start to take money out and give it to the private sector, you're saying that some citizens are worth more than others. And I think that's fundamentally not what most British Columbians believe. Um, it's a myth when they talk about how it saves money, because public education is not about saving money. It's, it's a public service, and it maintains, it, it maintains the belief in our society as it's structured in Canada and British Columbia. Um, so you start to see um, students leave the system, and we've, we've seen this before. We just have to turn to places like England to see what happened when um, people felt they needed to start, you know, mortgaging their homes to put their children in private schools. Um, you, the loss of diversity within the schools, uh, the loss of... Um, the loss of, uh, you know, we even in the United States, you see the schools in, in cities, and one, they have the concrete playground, and then the other side, they have all, you know, the bells and whistles of the latest technology, and, and just how unequal in, in the funding and the, and the resources are available to students. And that's not what we believe. We believe in an equal opportunity for every, everybody, and that every citizen has the same value and worth in our province. And... BC should not be funding private schools at all. They should not be getting one penny, in my opinion. The tax money that people contribute should go to every citizen, and we all benefit from the students that are in in the system now. They're the students that will take care of us and help pay for our retirement. So even if you don't have children, you're going to benefit from them. And the money should be, that's where it should be going, not to private institutions. Uh, It's interesting we keep saying Rob Fleming. Uh, obviously, the size of the money that's available here is uh, determined mainly by the Treasury Board and by the Minister of Finance. And uh, that's Carol James, who has had a long history in this business and was one of the creators of our current system of province-wide bargaining in the late 90s um, when she was chair of the BC School Trustees Association. Now, prior to 
so 22 or 21 or 22 years ago, we switched to this system where the province does the bargaining. Uh, prior to that, uh, bargaining was much more decentralized. The province gave block funding to school boards. Uh, school boards kept the, uh, more of the property taxes that they raised. And contracts were negotiated uh, district by district in the province. Um, how much of this problem is sort of a, a political partisan problem around government priorities, and how much of it is the system that we uh, we just have this one province-wide contract? I think those are both really key factors, and I, I, I would have to say that I think the bargaining uh, process on the employer side of the table is pretty broken and a big part of the problem. I know people like to say, oh, the BCTF never gets along with any government. Um, I, having been on the inside and being on the employer side and being the rep for the Vancouver School Board to the BC Public School Employers Association, have seen sort of how the sausage gets made on the employer side, and it's not pretty, and it's not a very effective process. So in BC, uh, bargaining for public school boards is done by the BC Public School Employers Association, which I believe, as you're talking about, was created uh, by a previous NDP government. Uh, to bring sort of a provincial focus to the table as opposed to having 16 individual school districts uh, negotiating contracts and the concern of, you know, whip sawing and different things that go on. Um, so, you know, you have this uh, situation where we have the BC Public Schools Employers Association. It's governed by a board that is made up of elected trustees, school boards elect trustees to represent them on the BCPC board. Government also appoints, I think, four members um, as well, but government controls the money. And, and really, history has shown that whenever there has been a deal, or the few times sort of made, it's really when the politicians get involved. We saw Christy Clark step in in 2014, I believe it was, and uh, before that, it generally ends up, it, it's politically controlled. BCPC does a lot of the minutiae, the sort of the, the painstaking work of the small print and the contracts and spends months at the table. Um, but, you know, whether school boards actually have much influence is really questionable. I used to go to those bargaining meetings where uh, it was made out to sound that we were all giving our input and giving sort of direction to the board, and, and I can tell you that did not happen. We were told what they were going to do. And I, I have to say, I was really troubled by the culture at the BC Public School Employees Association, some of the presentations, you know, back in the year is one that was a net zero mandate. We had really nothing to offer in a bargaining round. Uh, they'd come marching in there with a list of concessions they were determined to go after. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, we'll never get a deal. We need to kind of find a way to make this net zero palatable, much less sort of trying to antagonize uh, the, the employee group with uh, a series of, of takeaways when we're actually offering nothing. So it was a really... To me, that was mind-boggling the culture that went on there. So I think there's some real problems. I think the frustration of sending in BCPC with inadequate ability to really bargain a deal is, is frustrating a lot of people and wasting a lot of time. And I would say we really need to relook at that. And even the role of school boards, I hate to say it because I love being a school trustee and I think it's really important to get people in those roles that care but their roles have been so diminished over time. They can't levy taxes. They don't really do the, the, the money bargaining anyway. They can do some smaller issues locally. 
Um, and they're kind of stuck in the middle of the crossfire and nothing's getting done. And government, you know, can just keep sort of passing the buck saying, well, it's over to BCPC, but they don't give BCPC the tools they need to really get a deal hammered out. So, yeah, I would say there's some real concerns about what's happening on the employer side uh, in terms of being able to effectively bargain and get this thing done. Uh, returning to the show, uh, from just down the street, I can probably see her office from my window, uh, is uh, Joanne Hapke, uh, president of the uh, Prince George BCTF. Um, and uh, she's come back on the show to talk about the thing we're talking about this week, uh, the school reopening plan uh, that is rolling out across BC. So first of all, Welcome back and thank you. Thank you for having me on, Stuart. I always appreciate the chance to advocate for teachers to in a wider forum. Okay, so um, we, uh, I always imagined that our next interview would be about the contract. We won't even get to that this interview because uh, this week, uh, according to the Ministry of Education, Every school district in the province is reopening its uh, schools and resuming classes. There was an ad that the provincial government put out about what that would look like. And it involved seven kids in a classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, it had our, our favorite public access star, Bonnie Henry, leading the classroom. And there was a lot of distance and a lot of protocols that, um, are not actually going to be happening. Um, uh, what was your take on the ad and um, how it affects your explanation of what teachers are dealing with? Okay, so first of all, I have to say that we are disappointed that the uh, ministry used Bonnie Henry in that way. Dr. Bonnie Henry has done an incredible job within this province, um, and it was truly unfortunate that she was put into that ad. Now, having said that, that ad clearly demonstrates what teachers are looking for. Within that classroom was physically distanced uh, children. Uh, there were there was a child wearing a mask, which you know that that will be a choice item within our class our schools moving forward, especially in the elementary schools. Uh, but there was space between desks. There was a hand washing station, a sink within that classroom. Not every classroom uh, in BC has a sink in, in it. And so there are sink access and hallways. And so then we're going to be looking to hand sanitizing as our way of keeping yourself safe. When Dr. Bonnie Henry clearly states hand washing is number one, we may not be able to actually do that number one, well, physical distancing and hand washing. And so we do know within our classroom, there will not be physical distancing as required in all other aspects of our life. And there will not be the hand washing available to students as, as necessary. And we will be relying on hand sanitization to, to meet uh, that need. Okay, so um, uh, this is, you know, uh, it's funny because there was a moment when normally we think of our provincial government as enemies of the Trump White House. But there was a moment last week where Rob Fleming, the Minister of Education, and Donald Trump were singing from the same songbook when they stated that children are virtually immune to COVID and there's no danger of schools uh, becoming major disease transmission vectors. Um, how do we reconcile um, this 
the presentation of the science here? You know, the teachers are struggling with that. Uh, we, we, we love our children and we want them safe. And so we, we worry that they are going to transmit to one another, even though the data at this point, six months worth of data has said they're not going to truly transmit to each other. They're going to be transmitting to the adults. And this is where uh, my concerns come in because the, the teachers are the adults in that room. And so I'm very happy that the government is saying that children are safe. That makes, that helps us sleep at night. What's keeping me up at night is how are the teachers safe? Because right now the only thing keeping them safe is a mask and the hand sanitizer. That's the safety plan. We do not have physical distancing, which is the number one on that pyramid of safety uh, to, to keep everybody else safe. Teachers will not have that. And so the, 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 the recommendations for schools are vastly different from the recommendations for all other aspects of, the, of our life. And that is what teachers are struggling with. Why do we have to uh, line up to get into a grocery store, uh, but staggered entry for 1400 students into one of our high schools? It, it just doesn't make sense that uh, education is being viewed so differently. Now, having said that, teachers want to work with our students. But in the end, we want to do it in a safe manner so that those students are safe and that we are going home to our families and that we are safe in keeping our families safe. And one of the ways we can do that is through lessening the classroom density within our schools. Uh, the union was not part of those discussions. We asked to be part of those discussions well, that we are advocating for more teachers to be hired to allow for the physical distancing to occur, classroom density to occur, but also more importantly as well, or as importantly, remote learning opportunities for students whose families are trying to make a decision that keeps them safe. Now, when um, the government defended its uh, Bonnie Henry Act, um, their argument was that they portrayed a completely false image of the inside of a classroom because it would have been illegal to film what the classroom would actually look like. Um, so how is it we can have this disparity in labor standards where the standards uh, for the safety of actors and the standards for the safety of teachers are so far apart? You know, and, and once again, that, that's one of our questions. So when the ministry came out and said, well, we, we had to film it this way because we had to meet the health and safety requirements for those child actors. We went, we know. What about the child students who are coming into our classrooms? You know, the, the irony is, so we can have um, our 22 elementary students within our classrooms all day, but then we can't take them to Dairy Queen for an ice cream cone because we can only have them in groups of six at that point. So we, like, it's it just, it's the irony of the decisions that are being made that really confuse us and, and cause us to wonder, is this the safest restart plan that, that the province could have come up with? And, and we're saying no. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A. Thank you.